gonna <clears throat> we're just gonna keep running. If you need to get up and say hey to somebody or grab coffee, do it. But I'm gonna keep talking and give an introduction, so you're you're free to move about the cabin if you need to. Uh, we're starting a new series in the book of Haggai this week, and I'm really excited. You've had a week. Did you find it? Everybody found Haggai? <laughs> Starting your table of contents. And uh, it's towards the end of your Old Testament. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, dial it up, open it up, and turn to the book of Haggai with me. You know, the Haggai comes in a very unique place in the Old Testament. And the story of this people, um, I think in a lot of ways, reflects our own story. We say at Shalfer a lot, what's your story? If we've gotten together, maybe I've asked you at some point, what's your story? Lunch, coffee, membership interview, having you in our home. I've probably asked you some version of that question. What's your story? You know, the interesting thing about your story is maybe you've never reflected on your story until someone asked you that question. What is my story? Let me go back. I didn't realize how much this moment shaped me, but of all the things I could have remembered, for some reason I'm remembering this one right now. But what is your story? And how has your story shaped you? And how has your story led you to this moment in your life? And I think as we read Haggai 1, we're going to be forced to ask that about ourselves. But first, we've got to ask that about this people. So as we dive into this Old Testament book, we try to get some context this morning, but we see how God's working in us to invite us to some of these same questions he's asking his people in 520 B.C. Let's pray and ask him to speak to our hearts. Father, as we open your word in Haggai, would you please work in us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God's people in God's place, I think, is the story of Scripture. Uh, It starts that way in the book of Genesis. It's God's people in the Garden of Eden. And they experience an exile of sorts, right? They're exiled out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's presence. Eden was the first temple in Scripture. So in some ways, the story of the Bible is the story of the temple. And when you look Go read those chapters in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that describe the tabernacle and the temple, and the language that's used will be garden language, language of gold, language of cherubim. And you say, where have I heard all this before? And it brings you right back to the Garden of Eden because the temple was supposed to be a building that brought you back to what the Garden of Eden really was. It was God's presence. But we know that God's people can never live long in his presence, right? Never live long with his presence. And so in 586 BC, exile happens. His people are unfaithful. Go read First and Second Kings. Go read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and you see warning after warning of you are going to be sent away. You're going to be taken over, taken captive, and kicked out of this land. If you don't repent, if you don't repent, and they never do, they get exiled. Well, then years later, uh, they're still under the rule of foreign leaders, but some people get sent back. This is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. So people get sent back to go begin rebuilding the temple. And so where we pick up in Haggai is the people have been back for about 18 years. And if you go read Ezra, you see that they built the foundation of the temple. But then in Haggai, we learn that they just stopped. They built the foundation and then they stopped. So that's a little bit of historical, cultural timeline of what's happening in the story. And here's where we pick up. We're going to read a little bit and talk a little bit. Here's how Haggai once starts off. In the second year of, now, I read that and I say Darius, but I listened to a British guy this week say Darius, and that sounds so much better. Uh, In the second year of Darius, the king, 
In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. I think the first point of this message today, the first thing we see in Haggai 1 is the reality. The reality. We've talked about the context that yet again, they've been exiled because of their disobedience. They're brought back to the land, but yet again, they're being unfaithful. They're not being faithful to the highest priority of God's presence. That's the reality of, of what's happening here in Haggai 1, but do you notice how God engages them? You know, I told Carrie this week, I said, you know, I could teach Haggai 1 as like an introductory counseling class because of the way God handles this interaction with his people. First of all, he engages them even when they're unfaithful and disobedient. That is miraculously gracious enough that he, instead of seeing their unfaithfulness and recoiling back, he moves towards them through Haggai and speaks to them and engages them. That is the grace of God. But he doesn't just move towards them. Notice what he does. When he does engage them, it's not to scream and to smack. He asks them a question. Do you see it? Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Isn't that what a good counselor does? not just show up and lecture you, but asking these questions. And what is he doing when he asks these questions? He's inviting them to reflection because look at what he says, consider your ways. He's not just giving them the answer here. God is engaging them in conversation and he's saying, is it a, you say it's not time to build a house, okay, is, what about your house? Is it a good time for that? Why don't we consider your ways together for a moment? And he goes down and he lists five things here in verse six. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God asks them a question and he invites them to reflection. He says, consider your ways. The God's people here in Haggai 1 were invited to reflect on their reality. Let's be honest about your reality for a minute, God says. You're here back in the land. You've been here for almost two decades. Let's see what your priorities have been. And as we read Haggai 1, the, the same question is really posed to us. Are you willing to be honest about your reality? You know, God's engaging you asking the same things. He's inviting you this morning. Consider your ways. Are you willing this morning to consider your ways? That's not an easy task. It's not an easy task to consider your ways, but actually we can only truly encounter God if we're honest about ourselves. The only way you can encounter God is if you have an encounter between the real God and the real you. Are you willing to be honest about the real you? It's one thing for you to reflect on your priorities in a godless, mindful way, 
but it's a whole other thing to reflect on your priorities with God in light of his word. What would it look like for you this week to spend time with God and do exactly this? God, I'd like to consider my ways with you for a moment. And maybe you get out a notebook and a pen and you begin to write and say, God, would you show me the priorities in my life? And don't just show me, but you know what God does? God doesn't just invite them to reflect. God reinterprets what's happening to them. They probably knew their priorities and they were probably like, yeah, we are building our houses. We, are, we have paneled houses. Don't think like lavish marble countertops. That's probably not what they mean. They probably mean you've built your houses to the point of completion. You're not just living in shacks. You're living in houses that you fully built and then paneled in and built a roof inside. You've done the whole deal. But it's one thing to reflect on your priorities, and it's a whole other thing for allow God to reinterpret them, and that's exactly what he does in verse 6. When their priorities were out of whack, do you see what God says? Look, you're sowing a lot, but you're not harvesting. Eating and not full, drinking and still thirsty, and I love the last line. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And it makes me think of the passage in Jeremiah that talks about... um, a cistern and you're putting water in it and it's not holding any water. The things that you prioritize over God, God says have negative returns in your life. Are you willing for God to show you how your life is not working according to plan? That's, I think, exactly what he's doing in Haggai 1. God is reinterpreting their situation for them. Are you willing to be honest about where you are? Are you willing to be honest about what's not working in your life? I just don't know if I am. Are you willing to be honest about what's not working? Are you willing to be honest about things that are working in a completely different way than you thought they would be? You set your, your sights on something, you set your hopes on something, you begin to work toward it, and then you get it, and you kind of look around and go, was this it? I'm here. I have the job. I have the house. I have the kids I always wanted. Why do I still feel a little empty? Why do I still feel like I'm not satisfied? Like I don't have the joy I thought this would bring. I'm finally married. Why do I not feel the sense of completion that I thought I would feel? Are you willing for God to come in and say, let's consider your ways? I'd like for us actually right now to do that. I'd like to invite you to spend just a minute and let's pray in the middle of the sermon Because God is inviting you to do this, and I'm afraid if we go too quickly past this, we'll all forget to consider our ways by the time the sermon is done. So I'd like for you in an attitude of prayer right now to close your eyes and try to be still and pray this prayer. God, can we consider my ways together? God, we know your presence is a safe place to be honest about who we are. Help us to reckon with our reality and not lie about ourselves or lie to ourselves, God. Help us to be honest about who we are, honest about the things we love the most, honest about the things we're prioritizing in our life. And then, God, would you reinterpret those things to us? 
Show us what they mean. Show us what it means that we have certain priorities. Show us where those things are going to lead us and how they're going to let us down. And restore us back to you in Jesus' name. Amen. These people in Haggai 1 had taken good things and they turned them into ultimate things. And that is the heart of idolatry. That's the heart of the story of the Old Testament. So it's not just about the reality, though. What happens is you have the reality and God's inviting them. He's saying, let's be honest about who you are. Let's engage with the real you for just a minute. You're my people, but can you be honest? This is who you really are. These are the things you've really prioritized, and they're not satisfying you. So what does God do next? If the first point's the reality, the next point is the response. God instructs them in the way of obedience. Don't we know the story? God does this over and over again. You don't have to guess what's right in God's eyes. He's very clear. He says right here, build the house of the Lord. Let's pick up in verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, he says the same phrase. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God instructs them, go get the materials and build the house. It's clear. The response to reckoning with your reality is clear. The response for these people in Haggai 1, okay, if this is reality, what's next? God says, here's how you respond, obey me. But the challenge is that these people were in a place of real struggle. You say, why do you say that? Well, they're living in enemy-occupied territory. They needed to make a living. Now remember, for an entire generation, they had been exiled, and then they're released to go back. That sounds good to us on a timeline, but the reality is children were born in exile that never knew the land of Israel. Kids had grown up from little to now working age and they had to go learn a new land, cultivate new land, build homes and farms and make a living, rebuild houses to live in. They had to work hard to maintain a life for their family. And this was all in the middle of enemy-occupied territory. So in the middle of their real struggle, God was asking them to take on a rebuilding project. God was not asking them to give out of an abundance. God's asking them to give out of lack. He's not asking them to do this in the middle of a life that's going well. Isn't this how God invites you to obey? But isn't this how we always reason with God? Man, I, I, I can't wait one day when I make X amount of money, I am gonna give it all away. If you're not giving away out of your lack, you will not give away out of your abundance. You know, this season is so difficult. We're just pouring out so much. We've got school and we're working so much and the kids have all these sports and we just can't, you know, we just can't make it on Sundays for a while. But in the next few years, we're gonna be back. You know, when the kids get more settled and the kids get out of that, I've got news for you. No, you won't. You're not. If you're not doing it when it's difficult, if you're not prioritizing it when it's hard, you're not going to prioritize it when it's easy. And the flip side of that, God invites you to obey precisely when it's difficult. 
so that you can show what you really value. Isn't this a call to faith? I mean, I'm sure the people, I mean, think about who probably heard this call to build a house. Young, able-bodied, the strong, probably the same people who were working the hardest in the fields. And they're going, great, you're going to expect me to do that too? I mean, if I leave this, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? How are we going to make a living? Who's going to continue to fix up the house? God was inviting them to trust him in what he was going to provide. And this is exactly what God does with us. He invites you to obey before you understand. He invites you to obey before it makes sense and before you see how he will provide. He invites you to do it before you can plan out every step. Have you ever had something like that God was asking you to do that you said, I don't fully understand how it's gonna work or what's gonna happen, but you took a step and you watched God all along the way provide? We've had moments like that in our life, in our marriage, in our family. I hope you've had the joy of having moments like that, but it's not just big moments where it's like that. It's actually every single day. The same Martin Luther that Al quoted just a second ago, he was pretty famous for talking and writing about prayer, and he had this crazy way of thinking about prayer where he would say, the more I have to do during the day, I cannot help but spend three hours in prayer in the morning. Well, that's the opposite of how I think. I have so much to do today, I've got to wake up and get to work. I don't have any time to waste, but Martin Luther saw it the other way around. I've got to spend more time in prayer. Yeah, am I losing out on a couple hours of sleep and that energy would help me get things done? Yes, but the energy I gained from walking with Jesus is infinitely more. God was inviting these people to obey. And here's the crazy part. God does not promise circumstantial change. He doesn't promise it's going to get easier for them. There's still going to be homes to maintain. There's still going to be food to grow. There's still going to be families to take care of. And he invites you to experience change in spite of your circumstances, exactly like what God did in Carrie and I this last year in 2021. We often wish God would change our circumstances, but God usually wants to use our circumstances to change us. Right, like when I, when I sense something's not right in my life, my prayer is almost always for God to change the circumstance, change the thing, change the other person. And God's going, I'm interested in calling you to steps of obedience and changing you in the middle of this. That's not right. And that's what's happening in Haggai 1. But but here's the crazy thing. When when God calls us to obey him in difficult circumstances, the truth is we actually can't do that. His people right here in Haggai 1, they're not going to obey perfectly. In fact, in the very next chapter, we're going to read about how their expectations were wildly off because some of them remembered the old temple and how big and glorious it was and how this one's different and God's having to manage their expectations in some way and actually cast some beautiful vision of what's going to happen. But these people are not going to obey perfectly. They're going to rebuild a temple and it's not going to be as good as the last one. And these people are going to continue to be imperfect. They're going to continue to fail. They're going to continue to sin. So you say, well, what's the point? Because you said reckon with our reality and then respond in obedience. So what's the reality? How are we going to respond in obedience if you're now telling us, Johnny, we can't? The good news is that in the midst of extreme difficulty, extreme challenge, circumstances that you would never wish on your worst enemy, Christ obeyed for you. 
Christ looked the worst circumstances square in the eye and took one more step. He sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane and said, if there's any other way, and he took one more step. He was beaten bloody and took one more step. He put the cross on his back until he couldn't take another step. And here's the challenging part in Haggai 1. They're called to stop making a living so they can build a building. Jesus wasn't called to stop making a living. He was called to stop living altogether. Not so he could build a building, but so he could build a people because you know the temple's not the end goal, right? The temple was just a picture of Eden, God's presence, where God's people could meet with him. The temple was temporary, but now we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus was called to stop living so he could build a better, more glorious, more eternal temple. God in his people forever. So when we read Haggai 1 and we say, yeah, I want to reckon with my reality. God, I'm inviting you in. Let's deal with my circumstances right now. Let's deal with my reality. Let's be honest about myself. And then when God invites you to obey, you've got to realize you can't. If we stopped the sermon at point two and said, respond in obedience, had an invitation, invited you to consider all the priorities in your heart and challenged you to go do it, that would be a Christless sermon. And you'd be left without hope. If we can preach a sermon where we don't need the resurrected Lord Jesus, it's not a sermon worth preaching. You asked for my vision at Shalford? There. That. But in Haggai 1, even in this book, tucked away in the small minor prophets at the end of your Old Testament, which you normally accidentally turn to it as you're trying to get to the book of Matthew, we're invited to consider how Jesus' obedience is perfect. So when we read Haggai and we see people called to sacrifice in hard situations so they can glorify God, we shouldn't just be challenged to do that ourselves. We should be reminded that Jesus did this perfectly. And that's how this text leads us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus builds a greater temple by living and dying and resurrecting and sending his spirit to live inside his followers. Go read Ephesians 2. We're going to talk more about the temple next week as we look at chapter 2. But that's how this text leads us to Christ. It's not primary. Now, when you have Jesus, what can you do? You can obey but you gotta get the order right. So it's not that Jesus takes away our need to obey, it's that Jesus actually empowers our need to obey. So we see the reality, consider your ways. We see the response, obey in the midst of difficulty. We see Jesus who obeyed in the midst of difficulty. But what does all this lead to? Well, let's finish reading here in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They started off on the right foot, didn't they? And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In this last part, these last four verses, 
God only says one small thing. I am with you. When you deal with reality and then you have a right response, which is twofold, turning to Jesus and obeying, then the last thing God does is the renewal. God brings renewal. He brings renewal to the people. He says, I am with you, and then it goes on to say that he stirred up their spirits. What's amazing about him saying, I am with you, is consider how they viewed the presence of God. Localized. Temple. Specifically, holy of holies. Specifically, ark of the covenant. The mercy seat. The one place in between the way things built. Right there, God's presence. But right here, you have God saying something that seemed miraculous to them. I'm with you? Really? When God's people respond in the right way, we see him with his people. God's presence among them, even without the temple, was a foreshadowing that one day this is how it would really be. God present with his people through the Holy Spirit. But we also see in verse 14 that God stirs up the spirit of his people. He's, I mean, do you want your spirit to be stirred? That's exciting, right? When God comes in your heart and you have a new, a fresh vision, fresh excitement, fresh energy. You've had those times in your life, right? That's the kind of renewal God brings when we first deal with reality. and We're honest about who we are and where we are. But then also we pursue God's response and then God brings renewal. This kind of renewal didn't come when their circumstances got better and it'll be the same for us. You don't have to wait for better circumstances to experience renewal from God. You don't. You don't have to wait for better circumstances for God to stir up your spirit and for God to say, I'm with you. That's not what God's waiting for. He's waiting for you to come in raw honesty before him and get real before him and follow his steps to respond, which is to turn to Jesus, the one who responded perfectly in the ways you can't. Do you long for God's reassuring presence? And do you want God to stir up your spirit again? The only way is to walk through this process of renewal with God. As you see where your life has fallen short, where you've experienced brokenness with God, I pray that this would drive you to Jesus. It all starts in that first step. I mean, I, we could make a whole sermon about that first step, the reality. Because I think that's the hardest part for us. If you talk about having real encounters between the real you and the real God, I think the hardest part for each one of us is dealing with the real you. The real God, I can theologize and scripture talk my way out of making that impersonal, okay? And you could go read a theology textbook and it'd be about the real God. But you won't have encountered that real God until you get honest about who you are. And you allow that God to interact with the real you, the real things in your heart. The real priorities that shape the way you live. The real depression you deal with. The real anxiety that keeps you up. The real worries. The real struggles, the real sin the real suffering, that's not your fault that you don't want to tell anybody about. Unless you're honest and invite God in to touch every dark corner of your heart, 
you won't have a real encounter with God. But the beauty of that is the same beauty of one of my life verses, Isaiah 57, 15. It says the one who's high and holy, who inhabits eternity. That's what God says in Isaiah 57, 15. He describes himself really big. Thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Did you hear that? I dwell in the high and holy place. That's not surprising. We expect the high and lifted up one to dwell in a place like that, don't we? Well, yeah. That's why I come to church in my Sunday best because God dwells in the high and holy place. I need to present my best to God. I don't want him to be ashamed of me. I want him to meet me. But I got news for you. Isaiah 57, 15 is going to give us two options of where we meet with God. And when I read option one and it says high and holy, I have to choose option two because I have no shot at option one. And you don't either. So option one is I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who's of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If you're going to meet with God, if I'm going to meet with God, if we're going to be a church that meets with God, we've got to meet him in the lowly place. We don't have any hope of meeting him in the high and holy place. So let's, with Haggai 1, consider our ways and stoop down and be honest. Get down and get low and, get, and then get contrite. Get broken over our, our situation before God. And get low. God, I'm much worse than I thought I was. I'm much more broken than I thought. My, my mind doesn't work the way I thought it worked. I, I gotta stop lying to myself and get low and contrite and then start looking around and do you know who you're gonna see there? Jesus. Because that's exactly what he did. He descended. Who is it that can ascend to heaven? Not, not anybody else except for him who descended from heaven. And when you get in the lowest place, Jesus is down there with you. And the good news is, when Jesus gets in the low place, he is also the high and holy one who has the power in that low place to revive you and stand up again and give you life. So I don't know what you're expecting from Haggai 1, but this is a story, and it can be your story, of Jesus breathing life into you and inviting you to respond and live a life of obedience and congruence with God. Do you want renewal today? You're only going to find it down there. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this little book, Haggai. Thank you for speaking to us in words that were spoken 500 years before the birth of Christ. 2,500 years ago, these words were spoken to people who were called to build a building and were walking in obedience. And now we can look at these words, God, and we see you inviting us to be honest about ourselves. Are we gonna consider our ways with you today, God? I pray that we would. Give us uh, a sense of safety, that, that being with you is a safe place to be honest about ourselves, God. Help us to feel secure and not feel different than reality. I mean, help us to know we are secure with you. And we can be honest. We can confess. We can bring these things to you, God. It's okay to be honest about how broken we are.
And Christ, we pray that you'll meet us there. And we pray that you'd build a temple that's far more glorious than the temple of Solomon, far more glorious than this second temple that they started building here in Haggai. We pray we'd get a front row seat to the way you're building your temple in us by giving us your presence. God, we love you. We cannot believe how amazing the story is that you've given us in this book and the way you invite us to be a part of it. I just pray we'd have the humility to take the steps we need to take. If this morning, if you've never been honest about who you are in the presence of God, that's the first step of really putting your faith in Jesus. If you've never gotten honest about that, and you say, you know what, I need to be honest about my own brokenness so that Jesus can save that brokenness. And if you've never been saved by Jesus, I would invite you this morning that that is the step God is inviting you to take. Not to get better, not to commit to a life of church going, not to commit to a new offering that you're gonna give every other week. No, no, God is inviting you to Jesus. He's not inviting you to be sufficient. He's inviting you to the all-sufficient one. So this morning, would you take a step and pray in your heart, in your seat, Jesus, I'm more sinful and broken than I'd like to admit, but I know you can save me because of your perfect life, death, and resurrection. Would you pray that? I'm more broken and sinful than I'd like to admit. But Jesus, I know you can save me because of your life, death, and resurrection. Just in an attitude of prayer, all of our eyes closed. I hope if you've never prayed that, then this morning, I hope you've prayed that. And if you have, Christ has breathed life into you now. It says you're a new creation is what scripture says. If you prayed that, we've never, I don't think I've ever done this at Shalford. If you've prayed that, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you? If you prayed that this morning for the very first time, God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts this morning. For those of us who know you and have been walking with you, I pray this would be a fresh call to humility, a fresh call to Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.